All right, if you would please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We will be continuing our discussion on the issue of divorce and remarriage. Last week, if you were not here and missed what we had to say about the Old Testament's teaching on this subject, I recommend strongly that you would get that tape. Uh, We will have these two tapes available in a mini-series called God's Position on Divorce, like we had last time. It will just be updated with these two messages. But this morning we're going to look at what the New Testament has to say about the issue of divorce and remarriage. And as I prefaced last week's lesson, telling you that I do not in the flesh really enjoy teaching this. Apparently a lot of you didn't enjoy hearing it because our numbers are way down. But uh, it's an issue that we must address because the Lord Jesus addressed it. It's a very serious issue, and uh, therefore I just you know, pray that, that um, I could speak the truth as God's word unfolds it to us, and yet with love and compassion, understanding <clears throat> fully that but for the grace of God there go I, and that we are all sinners, and we all need God's grace and saving power. The emotional and the long-term harmful effects that divorce has not only upon the two people who are directly involved, but on any children in the situation, on their parents, other family members, and even friends, and on society in general is more than enough reason for you and I to be very concerned with this ever-increasing problem. However, the most serious tragedies, even though emotionally it affects a lot of people, the most serious of tragedies regarding the the, uh, issue of divorce and remarriage is that it violates, in all cases, the perfect will of God. And in many divorce situations, it it violates um, God's word, as we will see this morning. There are today... Four basic attitudes toward the issue of uh, marriage. Now, these four issues are in addition to the most prevalent, well, maybe it's not the most, but is a very prevalent attitude in our society today about forgetting the marriage vows altogether and just cohabitating together. You know, many, many people will say, well, it's not even worth it. We'll just live together, and when we get tired of one another, will split, and that way we don't have to go through the hassle of a divorce. But in addition to that attitude, there are four other attitudes. There is what could be called the backdoor attitude that essentially says if it works, that's great. If not, that's okay too because there's always what? The backdoor, the backdoor out, the the, uh, way of divorce, which is getting easier and easier to do, and cheaper and cheaper. And then there is the sensual marriage, and these marriages are based either on physical attractiveness to one another or sex, um, or in, we could call it maybe the sensual financial marriages, because some marriages are brought together for financial reasons, so a woman perhaps wants to marry a very rich man, and you know all about that. Then there is what we could call the adventurous marriage entered into for the supposed fun and experience of being married or being married to someone who is adventurous, travels a lot maybe, or someone who's um, always the life of the party, somebody who's just fun to be with, or perhaps somebody who's famous. And then 
Fortunately, there is also what we could call the commitment marriage, marriage with full conviction and understanding of both spouses that they have made lifelong vows to one another and before God, God as their witness. And they have done this for a death-do-us-part-only marriage. Now, in many... Huh? No, it's just a mourning thing. I'm sorry, but... my, my throat, if, until I talk a lot, it just doesn't clear out. Water wouldn't really. So I'm sorry. I, I know I listen to the tapes, and I think, oh, I, I do that a lot. <laughs> I, that's a sign, I guess, of age, isn't it? When <clears throat> you've got to clear your throat all the time. <laughs> no. <laughs> in, in many churches today, we find that, like the situation back in ancient Israel, the problems of divorce and remarriage are simply not addressed. Remember we talked about the fact that a lot of times you just don't hear this spoken from pulpits, especially if a preacher teaches topically. He can pick and choose what he speaks on, and he can avoid the subject of divorce his entire ministry. <laughs> but when you go expositionally through a, a book, you, you have to hit on everything that it teaches, and so that's where we are today. But a lot, in a lot of churches, this subject is not even addressed, or in a lot of churches, the subject is minimized or just plain ignored. Church standards and policies either don't exist regarding this issue or they are compromised in order to fit the demands and the whims of the congregations. Even when divorce and remarriage issues arise within the church membership and even in, within the pastorate, they are not dealt with on a solid scriptural basis as they should be. And that's a big mistake because the word of God is our final authority for faith and practice. And there are standards in the scripture, um, even for deacons who serve in our churches, and the situation with, and pastors too, situation with divorce. Now, one thing that remains a reality in this world is that there are a very large amount of people who have been divorced. That is a reality. That is a fact. And subsequently, there are in our society today a lot of children who grow up with a a single parent or in a divorce situation where their uh, biological parents no longer live together. And these people and these children need our help. Often, they're... (laughs) Speaking of help, what a servant. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Often their faith and their hope and their trust and their security and their whole lives have been drastically affected because divorce is a very traumatic experience, is it not? They say it's comparable to death, and in some situations it's even worse because at least with death there is closure. It's a very traumatic event. Hardness and cruelty ranging from mild withdrawal, apathy, all the way to physical abuse, tear away at even many marriages that have not broken up. You know, we're talking about those that have broken up, but there are a lot of marriages that are in turmoil that don't break up. I know from experience, my grandparents lived together for 60 years, and it was a very difficult marriage. And my, parent, my own parents lived together and never divorced. They almost did, but never did. And again, it was a very difficult, difficult 
marriage, lots of um, abuse and all kinds of things. So I know what I speak of here. Um, sometimes this is the cause of one spouse. Sometimes it is the cause of both of them. And we know it does take two to tango, right? So there's usually a little guilt on both parts. But if we who are God's people do not open our hearts to such people who are hurting, really big-time hurting, if we don't open our hearts to them, and many of them are our own people, because as we said, the divorce rate among Christians is sadly almost as high as it is in the world. If we don't open our hearts to these people who are hurting, we're missing a great opportunity to reach out and to help them with Christ's love. And we are missing a great opportunity for us to help them grow in Christ and perhaps reconcile and heal their marriages. There should probably be marriage conferences frequently in our churches and, and um, maybe even class on, on marriage and for young married couples and all kinds of things that we can provide for marriages today and do all that we can those that are split and try to, you know, have them reconciled before it's too late. There are only four basic possible interpretations of this. Since he got me the water, I probably should take a sip. Otherwise, I feel bad. <clears throat> there are only four possible basic interpretations of the teaching um, of Scripture on the issue of divorce and remarriage, and all four of them are found in various Christian circles. You know, depending on where you go to church, you'll find one or the other of these uh, interpretations. The strictest view is that divorce is never allowed under any circumstances for any reasons. And those who hold to this view will often treat a divorced person in such a spirit that it appears to be the unpardonable sin. Now, there are churches that teach this view. No divorce under any circumstances whatsoever. If you have divorced, you're like a second-class citizen. And I know some people who have been in churches like this and have, you know, just the guilt has just been terrible on them. The opposite view from this is that divorce and remarriage are permissible for any reason whatsoever. For, or for no reason in particular, you know, the no-fault divorce kind of idea. And those who hold, and I'm talking about in churches, okay, the interpretations within churches, these are the four. Those who hold to this view treat divorce in such a spirit that it appears to be an escape route to do whatever a person likes to do or wants to do in order to appease his own needs and his own lusts or his uh, other selfish ends. And then... So there's the strict view, no divorce under any situation, and the opposite is divorce under any situation whatsoever. And then there are two views that lie in between those two extremes. One view says that God permits divorce according to the scripture. He permits divorce, but, and that's under certain circumstances, but he never permits remarriage to another person. So, yes, divorce is permitted in the scripture under certain circumstances, but never remarriage. And then there is the fourth interpretation, which says that God permits both divorce and remarriage, according to his word, but under certain limited circumstances. Now, obviously, the Bible only teaches one of these four interpretations because they're exclusive of one another. All four cannot be right. 
So one of the four has to be correct. Now, since we in this study do not want to be like the Jews of Christ's day, nor like so many people in our own day, and simply interpret the word of God to suit our own standards or um, uh, to, to uh, compromise so that it won't affect some of you personally, or probably most of us, all of us probably know somebody close to us who has been divorced. We don't want to do that. We don't want to compromise and accommodate. We want to really look at what the scripture has to say and understand it for what it says. <clears throat> and we want to correct any erroneous doctrines. I hope you're all open for that, that your minds are open and willing. If you've had some erroneous ideas about this issue, we want to be open to be taught. We want to replace them with the truth. And as we do so, we're going to find that the fourth interpretation is that which is consistent with New Testament teaching. Both divorce and remarriage are permitted in the, in the scripture by God, but only under two very specific circumstances. And even then, understand always that it is never God's perfect will for any divorce. He has his perfect will and his permissive will, but his perfect will is for no divorce, period. Now, every year, and we're going to be looking at those, those specific circumstances as we get into the um, various verses we'll be looking at. Did you know that every year in the United States alone, there are over one million people who experience divorce? And these are not even the latest statistics. This was a few years ago. I don't know what the latest statistic is. For every nine marriages, at least five of them end in divorce. So we have actually toppled over the 50% mark. And for Hollywood, it's probably something like eight out of every nine marriages end in divorce. And that's the crowd, you know, out there who's so fiercely trying to affect the rest of society with all their uh, propaganda. It's interesting to note that two of the Ten Commandments relate to the sanctity of marriage because not only is adultery forbidden in Exodus 20, 14, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, but then in the commandment regarding covetousness in Exodus 20, verse 17, there is the inclusion of not coveting another man's wife. So really two out of the Ten Commandments deal with the issue of Divorce, or potential divorce, adultery. For a married person to even desire another partner from the very beginning of time was a grievous sin. And this, of course, is exactly, remember, what the Lord Jesus stressed back in Matthew 5, 28, when he taught that adultery is not just confined to the, the outward act, the actual deed of adultery, but to the thoughts and intents of the heart and the mind. You know, whosoever even looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. God established marriage as the spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, and social union of one man with one woman. He's the one who established it, and that's, that was his... And now, he could have established it one man with several women, but a man has enough trouble with just one woman, so God, God in his wisdom, one man. I mean, he could have established it one woman with two men. He could have had one man with one man, one woman with one woman, but that would have been the end of the human race. 
Uh, he could have had um, many men with many women, and they could pick and choose for a lifetime which partner, I mean, not a lifetime, but they could pick and choose and swap, you know, all the time, their, their uh, sexual partners. A big communal thing. But God didn't do that, did he? He, he picked one man and one woman for a lifelong, inseparable, only by death union. And anything else violated his perfect will. Now, although, as we discover, there are two situation, situations in which God permits divorce, even in those situations, as I just said, it is never his perfect will. And he hates the split. We, we looked at Malachi 2.16 where God, it says God hates divorce. He hates the split up of any married couple. So I say that to say this because you hear this. You hear this a lot. At least I do. People will say, well, the Lord led me to leave him, to divorce him. Nobody can ever rightly claim that they were led of the Lord or led of the Spirit to get a divorce. God, you know, if you get a divorce, that's one thing. But don't blame God for it. God is never to be blamed, and he is never to be used as the reason or the excuse for a divorce. He hates divorce. He's not going to do something be the cause of something that he hates. Divorce is always a product of sin. It's the product of the breaking of vows. Remember how we talked how important vows are in God's sight. When you make a promise, you keep the promise. Um, it's the product of the hardness or the, what we call the sclerosis of the heart. It's a, the prod, divorce is a product of the hardness of heart on the part of one or, or the other of the marriage partners. Now, in this lesson, which is what, number 38, New Testament teaching on divorce, we're going to look, first of all, at what Christ had to say on the issue of marriage and divorce, um, divorce and remarriage. And then, and that was in the Sermon on the Mount, verses uh, 31, 32 of chapter 5, then we'll look at Matthew 19. So if you want to go ahead and put a, a marker at Matthew 19, we'll be looking at verses 3 to 9. We may skip over what Mark has to say, but I might just throw in what he tells, uh, tells us real quickly. And then we want to look at what the Apostle Paul taught and spend some time also in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. So let's begin by looking at what Jesus taught, and for this we will look at Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, following his discussion on adultery, he says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. There he was talking about the rabbinic teaching of his day on the matter of divorce. And this is what we discussed in last week's lesson. In other words, the teaching of the rabbis over the centuries was, If you want to put away your wife because she has lost favor in your eyes or some issue about uncleanness, then you must fill out the proper divorce papers. And that was their big thing, is that you can put away your wife for any reason, you just have to have the proper paperwork. So he says, that's what you heard. But then in verse 32, the Lord goes on and says, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Here in verse 32, he's telling his listeners what he has to say on this subject, which once again demonstrates his superior righteousness 
to that of the religious rulers of Israel at that time. His statement actually shows how very little the religious rulers really did understand or wanted to understand that Deuteronomy 24 passage that we looked at, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, where the bill of divorcement was first introduced to Israel. The issue of divorce, as they taught it, the the rabbis, was merely this matter of legal paperwork. It was to be exactly, you know, the, the divorce document was to be exactly 12 lines long, no shorter and, and no longer. It had to be properly signed. It had to be witnessed by two people. And then, according to their teaching, a man was completely innocent. If he did that, filled out the proper paperwork, he was completely innocent of violating the seventh commandment regarding adultery when he took himself a second wife. So their teaching was that some precise paperwork would legalize their lust. And by the way, the Pharisees were the most notorious for divorcing their wives. They were the leaders of the pack when it came to divorcing and you know, having multiple marriages. However, here now we see in just one sentence, Jesus condemned their entire casual divorce system. In one sentence, he accused them of having considerably contaminated God's people and creating a society of adulterers. Remember at one point in time, or many, maybe several times, he said, uh, uh, you are a generation of th- those, let's see, how's it go? Hmm? Oh, yeah, vipers, but... Uh, this, a generation of um, adulterers seeketh after a sign. I should have looked up where that is. But he called them a, a generation of adulterers. He did. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> and they were, uh, because they were constantly putting away their wives and remarrying. Their gross misinterpretation of God's word and their evil twisting of God's holy standards of righteousness regarding the marriage institution particularly by those of the school of Hillel. Remember, we discussed the two schools of interpretation, Shammai and Hillel. Shammai was the conservative who said that divorce was only permitted under very extreme, and he really didn't even define what uncleanness meant. It was some kind of wild woman running around naked all the time or something crazy. Couldn't be adultery because they were stoned to death for adultery, but that was a conservative school. Very few followed that at the time of Christ. Most went the way of Hillel, who was a rabbi, a very popular liberal rabbi, who had died about 20 years before Christ. Um, but he taught that, it, you know, basically he taught that a, a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. I told you some of the reasons last week, but one was if a woman was barren. If she couldn't give him children, he would divorce her and, and try to find someone who could give him children. He and those who followed him treated women like merchandise, really. You know, they could be sought, sold and bought and traded at any whim of the husband whatsoever. Put too much salt on the food or not enough salt on the food. And this philosophy, this school of thought had led multitudes of people into the sin of adultery and judgment. The one and only legitimate cause that the Lord presented for divorce is what? In verse 32. except for the case of um, fornication, he says. And the word fornication in the Greek is pornia. What word do you think of from that Greek? Pornography. That's where we get our English word pornography. 
It is the root of the word from which we get our English word pornography, and it's a very broad term for every kind of sexual immorality. Not just, uh, it includes adultery, and it includes sexual intercourse um, outside the marital bond between two unmarried people. That's what we usually think of when we hear the word fornication. They're not even married, they're just living together or something like that, or or have a one-time union, and that we call that fornication. But the Greek word includes adultery, it includes uh, bestiality, incestuousness, um, uh, homosexuality, and it includes all of the immoral sexual activities that men create in their perverse minds. Uh, what's the other one? Um, with children. Yeah. Um, yes, I said that one. The one, Pedophile. Pe- yeah. So the Lord was giving no more, really, he was giving no more divine approval for divorce than God did through Moses. He was giving no more reason for divorce than God did in Deuteronomy. Under the Old Testament law, sexual sins, you see, outside of the marriage bond, were resolved when the guilty marriage partner was caught because then he or she was put to death. They were stoned to death or they were strangulated. So there was no... There was no need under the true sentencing of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, for divorce in the case of adultery. Why? Because they were dead. (laughs) So according to God's standard, only death ended a marriage. Either the natural death of one partner, because if if your husband dies, that has ended the marriage here on earth, right? Um, So death either ended by the natural physical death of one partner or the unnatural death, the punitive death of an adulterous partner. In the New Testament age of grace, however, even though God never condones divorce, he uh, permits it under the situation of fornication or adultery Um, because it is his merciful alternative to the death death sentence. And this is what Christ is testifying here in Matthew 5.32. But we need to note that even in the Lord's statement regarding the case of immoral sexual sin or pornea in a marriage relationship, divorce is not a required, it is not a mandatory requirement. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying, if your marital partner has committed some sexual sin, like adultery, that you have to divorce him. That is not what he is saying. God's perfect will, even after such a heinous sin as adultery, his perfect will would be for forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. His perfect will, even in the case of adultery, would be for that marriage to be healed and for it to stay together. And this is the lesson that we have in the book of Hosea. Hosea, who was a prophet of God, um, who suffered the adultery of his very promiscuous wife named Gomer. You don't see here of many young girls named Gomer, do you? Not exactly the most feminine name there is. <laughs> so I say we should pronounce it Gomer. Sounds a little more... <laughs> But Hosea suffered for years, I mean, for many, many years, 
um, the unfaithfulness of his wife. Yet he serves, Hosea serves us as a picture in type of God himself and God's forgiving and patient love for Israel. Although Israel repeatedly committed spiritual adultery against God, turning you know, to the worship of many false gods, many other lovers, so to speak. Yet God, just like Hosea, continued to love Israel unconditionally, as Hosea continued to love Gomer unconditionally. And one day, as we find in the account of Hosea and Gomer, the Lord Almighty will restore Israel to himself, will he not? Even though she has been a very adulterous spouse. She has been whoring around, exactly. And yet one day she will be restored to God Almighty because it says in Romans 11:26, one day all Israel shall be saved. So that's our example. Never is a believer who has suffered the pain of an unfaithful spouse to use Matthew 5:32 as his or her quick and happy excuse to rid himself of his marriage partner. It is permitted in the case of adultery, but it is never commanded or required. It should really be considered as a last resort, you know, to, to be used only when the adulterous partner demonstrates an adamant refusal to be restored and continues in unrepentant immorality. The wrong spouse, especially when the wrong spouse is a believer, is otherwise, you know, to attempt to do everything possible to reconcile that marriage. Of course, with God's comfort, it's going to take a lot of God's grace in a situation like that. I mean, if my husband did that to me, I'd really want to kill him. You, you just would. So it takes an enormous amount of God's grace and comfort and guidance of the Holy Spirit and unconditional love to forgive and to strive for a reconciliation in a situation like that. But it is possible. I have seen it, I'm sure you have seen it, where a, a very godly Christian spouse is able to forgive and um, restore that marriage. But of course, again, the sinning spouse needs to genuinely repent and turn from his or her wickedness and seek forgiveness. And then when he does or she does, the wronged one is to seek to forgive him or her. Just as God does. You know, God puts our sins as far away from him as the east is from the west and into the deepest part of the ocean. That's hard for us to do because we would want to keep bringing it up and bringing it up. You know what you did. You know, I can never trust you again. And, and keep, keep that sin over his head or her head for the rest of their lives together. Well, that's not true forgiveness. True forgiveness would put it behind. And again, I am not saying this is easy to do. Only by God's grace is it possible. But let that sinning partner see the love and the forgiveness of Christ in you or me or whoever is involved, especially if the one who sinned is an unbeliever. Is this important? If he or she is an unbeliever, then the, the amazing forgiveness of the believing spouse may be actually instrumental in leading him to salvation in Christ. So we shouldn't forfeit the opportunity to take that which man has meant for evil and use it for good, as the Genesis 50-20 principle teaches us. We can take a sour lemon and make lemonade out of it. 
we should use, uh, and when I say we, they, whoever is in a situation like this, should use it for a genuine testimony of their Christian faith, even though the pain would be almost unbearable. Trust in the Lord and lean on his strength to help us uh, conquer a bitter or a vengeful spirit. And this can be true even in a troubled marriage. We need to, we need to be Christ-like in any marriage situation that is, well, in, in any marriage period, because they're never just totally a smooth road. But we need Christ's love to shine through all of our marriages. And hum, amazing grace, you know. I thought about when your husband is in a tirade or you're having troubles in the home, just say, yes, dear, and start humming, amazing grace. <laughs> that might help. On the other hand, if ample time has been given and the wrong spouse has done everything possible to demonstrate a genuine desire on his or her part to reconcile that marriage, but the abusing spouse shows absolutely no evidence of repentance and absolutely no positive response, and this has gone on for quite some time, or the abusing spouse simply continues his or her extramarital sexual activity, and the wrong spouse cannot take any more abuse, any more of the pain or the heartache or the cruelty. Perhaps that wrong spouse is about to have a breakdown or something. I don't know. Um, but they just come to the end of their rope. Then, you know, divorce is permitted. Jesus Christ says, except in the case of fornication. So it is, per, divorce is permitted in this situation. Now, of course, in the Old Testament economy, it would have been taken care of right away because that, divorce, that adulterous spouse would have been put to death. And in this situation, um, the wrong spouse will not be considered guilty of sin or judgment for the divorce because uh, he was not the wrong, he or she was not the one who did the wrong. The Lord does not wish to keep the innocent person in this kind of bondage forever. Again, though, you know, each situation is different. So it takes a lot of God's discernment and judgment and grace and prayer to know when to say enough is enough. And you can't, you know, define that definitively when enough is enough. It depends on the situation and the people involved. One thing to be very cautious about is that neither spouse looks for a way out of the marriage by attempting to drive his or her partner into an adulterous relationship. You know, this can be done. This can be done by verbal abuse, mental cruelty, withholding physical contact, withholding love, withholding understanding. You know, it is possible and it frequently happens that a person sees the infidelity of his partner as an instant ticket to his own freedom. Uh, but God knows the heart, doesn't he? We have to remember, God sees all. He knows uh, that a sexually faithful partner can sometimes be almost as guilty in his or her motive as the one who has abused the, the marriage with a physical act of adultery. You can drive a spouse to that. If, if, for example, if you withhold yourself from your marriage partner, you can drive them to seek satisfaction elsewhere. Or you can drive them out by a nagging spirit, um, all kinds of ways. And then, you, you know, people will use that as their ticket out. Yeah, well, he, he had an affair, so now I have freedom. But God knows the motive. 
Anyone in a troubled marriage needs to first examine himself to see his own part in the situation. To one degree or another, both partners are, you know, at fault. There's, you can never claim perfection for yourself in a marriage situation because no one has ever gotten through a marriage sinless. Probably the first day, I know it was with us, our first day of marriage, we both sinned in our attitudes and motives and words toward one another. It doesn't take long, but there's never any perfectly sinless spouse on either side of the issue. But the, So the biblical principle to follow is not to look for a way out of a marriage, but to look for a way through the problems of your marriage. Now, let's read Matthew 19. If you would turn over to Matthew 19. I want to read verses 3 to 9, because this is also what Christ has to say in the New Testament regarding this issue of divorce and remarriage. Matthew 19, starting at verse 3, where it says, The Pharisees also came unto him, unto Christ, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They said unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery." Look at verse 10. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. All right, we'll stop there. In Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees, who divorced more than anyone, came to the Lord Jesus in order to tempt him, it tells us, or to test him, so that he would lose public favor and be easier to do away with. This is getting near the end of his life now, or the end of his public ministry, the end of his life, and they're very close to crucifying him. Uh, they, so they asked him this question, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Knowing, you see, that he had already stated back in the Sermon on the Mount that pornea, or adultery, was the only acceptable cause for divorce. And knowing... Too, that this limited view of divorce was very, very unpopular with most Jewish men at that time. It was even, we see how unpopular it was even by way of the disciples' reaction to what he had to say. Even his disciples, after hearing his response to their question, in effect say, Who, if a man cannot put away his wife except for the case of adultery? fornication then what did they conclude it's better not to marry isn't that awful but that was that was the prevalent attitude and we see that reflected in the attitude of even his disciples you see the deuteronomy 24 passage 
was very wrongly interpreted to mean that a man could divorce his wife when she was found guilty of some uncleanness or disfavor in his eyes. And as I said, this was propagated through the school of Rabbi Hillel. And an uncleanness could mean anything at all that the husband wanted it to mean. It could mean that she t talked too loudly, just to throw in another one, or that he was no longer uh, um, attracted to her physical appearance. So the Pharisee's question was purposely premeditated so as to make Jesus less popular with the Jewish men. Now this would, on the other hand, make him more popular with the women, don't you think? No wonder the women like Jesus so much. <laughs> but the men here, this would make him less popular with the men. More importantly, however, was uh, the fact that at the time of Matthew 19, you don't know this because we haven't gotten this far yet, but Jesus was now in Matthew 19 in Perea, in the province of Perea, which is where Herod, which was the area where Herod Antipas was the tetrarch. Herod, remember, was the wicked ruler who had imprisoned John the Baptist for having condemned his own adulterous affair uh, with his brother's wife, Herodias. He had an adulterous affair with her, and then he divorced his own wife in order to marry his brother's wife. And by this time, by the time of Matthew 19, the Baptist had been beheaded as, uh, as well. So the evil intention of the Pharisees was not only that Jesus would lose favor with the majority of Jewish men, um, but especially because he was standing in Herod's domain, that he might also experience or suffer the same end as the Baptist. You know, if Herod Antipas got word that Jesus was speaking out against divorce and adultery, as John had, maybe he would arrest Jesus, and then they would be done with Jesus, which is what they wanted. However... Instead of giving the Pharisees a straight yes or no answer, what did Jesus do? What did he always do? He answered their question with a question of his own, as he so often did. Since they prided themselves on their supposedly great knowledge of Moses, he asked them about something that Moses had written back in Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He said, have you not read that he, meaning God, which made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. In other words, he was asking them or saying to them, why have you been deba debating this divorce issue all these years? Don't you know that this issue has been resolved from when? The very beginning, by the creator himself. To him, a man and a woman in marriage are to be inseparable. They, they are divinely united. You know, that's what the word cleave means, like super glue. They're seen as a, a new creation, two become one. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. When a man and a woman make their vows to one another, God sees them as a new creation. And they are, they are seen as one. According to the Lord's statement, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Uh, what he is saying there is that it is God who joins them together. Now that doesn't necessarily mean God brought them together. But once they have said their vows, God in heaven seals that marriage. He cleaves it. And he now sees them as one. What God has joined together. So God is the one who joins it together. Who's the one that ever puts it apart? Not God. The Lord didn't lead to the divorce. 
man is always responsible for, for putting it asunder. It's God who joins them together. And that, that means that every marriage, whether it's a marriage between pagans, uh, between Hindus, between one believer and one non-believer, whatever, that marriage is inseparably, once the vows are taken, is inseparably joined together by God. So he was saying, Christ was saying that marriage is always the work of God, but divorce is always the work of man. And no man has the right to separate that which God has joined together. And again, understand that that doesn't mean God brought those people together. Because there's a lot of uh, disobedience sometimes. This is why it's so important for for you to stress to your young people that they aren't even to date a non-Christian. Um, that sometimes happens, but you shouldn't, as a, as a Christian, if you're a Christian parent today, don't even let them date a non-Christian because it is disobedient to be unequally yoked. So God doesn't always bring them together, but once they are brought together in marriage, he seals it. That's it. Mistake has been done, but it, now, it's, now it's sealed. And it's to be forever. So no man, has to no man has the right to separate what God in heaven has joined together. The only way we can ever understand the seriousness of divorce is to understand the sacredness of marriage in the sight of God. It's a picture of him and his relationship to Israel. And it's a picture of Christ and his relationship to the church. And it is the most blessed human relationship there, that there is. And God sees it as very, very sacred, very holy. Regardless of how men have corrupted the marriage bond or how much they have disregarded God's part in it. And this, see, this is true even in a, if you've gone to a wedding where God has no part in it whatsoever. They get married in Vegas, you know, by a justice of the peace or whatever. And God's name is never even mentioned. That doesn't change it. In heaven... God sealed that marriage, and it's to be for a lifetime. And that's his, his, still his idea, no matter what man's part in all of this and how much man has disregarded God's part in it, to destroy any marriage. And uh, this goes for the outside third party, by the way, who flirts with a married man or flirts with a, a married woman. To destroy any marriage is to destroy that which God himself created for man's own good. Because marriage is God's plan for, for uh, procreation, for pleasure, and for preservation of the human race. You know, you can understand how serious God looked at the institution of marriage when you understand that the, an adulterer in the Old Testament was put to death. Because, see, it's murdering a new creation. Remember I said when you bring two people together, it's a new creation because the two have become one. And for one of them to commit adultery is actually murdering that one oneness of that relationship. Therefore, for a third party to come along and flirt with either one of those people and attempt to pull them apart, that person is also guilty of trying to murder, right? And so you see that God saw adultery in the same eyes, the same, with the same perspective as he saw murder, and both were guilty of the death penalty in the Old Testament economy. Now, Matthew 19.7 shows us just how badly these, the Pharisees had interpreted the Mosaic passage in Deuteronomy 24 when they say to Jesus, why did Moses then command 
to give a, a bill divorcement and put her away. You see, they totally turned God's word upside down. Their interpretation took that which had been divinely intended as a persuasion against divorce, and they presented it instead as a divine commandment for divorce. They were saying that God actually commanded through Moses for them to put away their wives. But that's not true at all. You know, you don't see that command in Deuteronomy 24. The only commands you see in Deuteronomy 24 are the command that, you know, if you are going to put your wife away, which you shouldn't do, and God's trying to hinder that, you must have a bill divorcement. That's the command. If you're going to do it, you can't just throw her out. You have to have a bill of divorcement. And the other command is that once you put her out, you can't ever remarry her. She goes out and marries somebody else. It's commanded you cannot remarry her. And again, we talked about this last week. I hate to go over it again, but that was to hinder the divorce from ever happening in the first place. But their interpretation could not be more incorrect. God never, ever commanded divorce, except in that one freaky situation we talked about in Ezra 10. And that was a unique situation. If you missed that, get the tape. He only suffered or permitted divorce. Why? Again, because of the hardness of men's hearts. When any divorce occurs under any circumstances, it is because of the sclerosis of the heart of one or other, the other or both of the marriage partners. Now, in Matthew 19, 9, he repeated really what he had said over in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 32, he said that the man who puts away his wife for any reason except for fornication and then goes out and marries another, is guilty of committing adultery. Furthermore, he causes his first wife, the one he put out, to commit adultery if she then remarries. Now, why do you suppose the Lord allowed for divorce in the case of adultery? Well, in light of his merciful ways, there are two reasons which seem to be accurate. Number one, to demonstrate mercy to the adulterous spouse by presenting a divine alternative to the death penalty. See, this was merciful because in the Old Testament days, the first affair he had, he was dead. If he got caught, he was dead. So the Lord now in the New Testament is giving a divine um, alternative and he's doing so in mercy. You see, if the adulterer or adulteress was to be put immediately to death, they would not be given additional time on earth to repent and get saved. Now, I know there are Christians who commit adultery, and that, and that is very, very sad, and they will be seriously chastened by God for doing so. But most adulterous relationships are committed by unbelievers. I would say, maybe I'm wrong, but I would say that's true. So God in his mercy now in the New Testament age of grace is giving them time, more time to repent and get saved. Otherwise, you know, death, that's it, hell forever. Secondly, to show mercy to the innocent spouse because now the innocent spouse is permitted to remarry and again enjoy the blessings of marriage. Now let's get even more confusing by looking at what Paul taught, okay? Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 7 and see what the Apostle Paul taught further on this issue of divorce and remarriage. 
Now, you know, the husband she married would have to be in an innocent situation, too. <laughs> or it would be adultery if he just left his wife. Yeah. I know, this is why, there's, this is why so many people avoid the whole thing, because it can get confusing. We'll try to summarize it at the end, so it maybe won't be quite so confusing. All right, let's look at verses... Um, Let's see. Let's start at verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. This is Paul speaking. He says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. Now, he's speaking to Christians here. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart... Let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? All right. First of all, let me explain verse 10. This is what Paul says in verse 10 is Christians married to Christians. And what was happening is that this this was right after Christ, you know, and the new the the church was just getting started, and um, if there was a couple and they were both Christians, they they were thinking that they could prop, or maybe one of the partners was thinking that they could better serve the Lord if they were single, like Paul, you know. Oh, I could go here and I could go there. Maybe maybe the disciple, maybe the man was thinking, oh, I could I could just be like Paul and go everywhere if I didn't have the baggage of my wife, even if she was a Christian. And so they were thinking it would be more spiritual to put away their wives. Of course, this would have to be the men because the women didn't divorce in those days. Well, no, this is Corinthian, so the Greek women could. So that's why I said both. The man could put away his wife or the woman could put away her husband In this, because this is Greeks. Jews couldn't. Jewish women could not divorce their husbands, but Greek and Roman women could. So he's saying, no, 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 don't even, not even for a spiritual reason. Have you ever thought that? Some of you who maybe felt like, oh, I could go to the mission field, but, you know, my husband doesn't have the call, and maybe it would be better if I just got rid of him, <laughs> divorced him, so I could go. <laughs> Paul is saying, no, 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 you cannot do that. So that's what he's essentially saying in, um, in verse 10. And then we find in the rest of this that Paul, Paul is giving one additional concession for divorce and remarriage to the New Testament believer. Because, because the Lord Jesus himself had not dealt with this particular issue, Jesus never spoke about this particular issue, Paul was now divinely inspired to write about it and give instruction. It doesn't mean when he says, but, you know, I speak not the Lord. It isn't, he isn't saying that the Lord doesn't agree with this. Paul is just as divinely inspired as, as uh, any other part of, of the scripture when we read the Lord Jesus' words. Paul's words here are divinely inspired. He's just saying basically, 
The Lord didn't talk about this, but now I am going to. He is going to give instruction to Christians married to non-Christians, telling them whether it was permissible for the Christian to divorce a non-Christian spouse. Now, it is, of course, a direct act of disobedience, as I spoke of earlier, for a Christian to knowingly marry a non-Christian. However, if an individual becomes a Christian after the marriage vows are taken, then he or she has no divinely permissible excuse to divorce the unsaved spouse. Now, this happened a lot in New Testament days. Two pagans, like the two Corinthian pagan worshipers, um, were married. And then the gospel, the light of truth, came through, and let's say the woman heard it and got saved. And then she heard teaching, um, you know, about living in separation from worldliness and paganism, and she, she would learn teach, hear teaching about how her body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it was natural for her, let's say, we'll take the woman, to wonder about being unequally yoked with pagan worshipers. And then she might read Ezra 10 or G Jeremiah 13, where God commanded the, the, the Jewish men who had married pagan wives to put away their wives. But, of course, that was just for the preservation of Israel. This was a different situation now. We're in the church. But she might read all that and hear all this teaching and think that it would be biblically correct for her to put away her pagan husband or vice versa if the man was the Christian. So this is, this is the situation he is uh, addressing. They might also you know, wonder if, if their union wasn't somehow joining Christ with Satan. And they would wonder if such marriages with unbelievers were actually defiling them and defiling their home and defiling their children. So Paul made it clear that the very opposite is true. To the contrary, the believing spouse actually sanctifies the other spouse and the children. Now, of course, this does not mean that the saved partner um, automatically, because he or she is saved, that the spouse becomes saved and all the children become saved. That is not what it means because we know each person individually is responsible for accepting the gospel on their own. However, it does mean that the presence of the Christian in a home one or the other of the spouses exerts a spiritual influence in that home, which that home otherwise would not, would, would not have. The Holy Spirit is present in that home through that believer. And uh, the Holy Spirit can, you know, as you're humming amazing grace in all your difficult situations, <laughs> you're having an impact. You're having a testimony for Christ, and, and ho hopefully, you know, you're just spilling out the glory and, and the love of Christ. And that may lead to the salvation of your children, hopefully, and of your spouse. I was married to, I was unequally yoked. Frank was not saved for the first five and a half years of our marriage. I wish I could say I went around humming Amazing Grace. I didn't. But, <laughs> but through a book I bought for him um, on prophecy in the Bible, he did come to a saving knowledge of the Lord and all because of God's grace, all three of our children have been saved. You know, the, you, the power of one, of one believer in the home can be amazing. And you don't ever, ever quit. You don't ever stop praying for your husband, no matter how far he may seem to be from the Lord. But you see, God looks on the family as a unit. Just as he looks at the marriage 
couple as one. He looks at the, fam at the, the whole family as a unit. And even if that unit is divided spiritually in its faith, the entire unit is graced or set apart by the one believer among it. Furthermore, the children are protected from undue spiritual harm. They are set apart for spiritual blessings which children from families with no Christian parents do not receive. Do you remember how God was going to save the entire city of Sodom if he could find within it just ten righteous people? Abraham got him all the way down to ten. And God said, yes, if there are ten righteous people in that city, I will preserve it. God is willing to bless many wicked people for the sake of just a few righteous in their midst. That's why I think of saving America today is the few righteous in its midst. Believers, you see, are the preservative salt of this world. And remember that in your marriage situation in your home for you who are married to unbelievers. You are the preservative salt in that family. Paul tells us then in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and 13 that the unbelieving spouse is never to initiate a divorce with an unbelieving spouse except for in the case of one situation, adultery. Remember, we talked about this. So except in the case of continuous, unrepentant adultery of your spouse, otherwise the believing spouse is never to initiate a divorce with an unbeliever. However, he went on to say in verse 15, but if the unbelieving depart, what? Let him depart. If the unbelieving marriage partner no longer desires to live in marital union with the Christian spouse, then Paul tells the Christian, let him depart. This means don't force him to stay. Don't coerce him or her to stay against his will or her will. Don't pressure the unbeliever to stay in a relationship that he or she absolutely despises because it will only lead to further disharmony and tension in that home. And God hath called us to peace, it says. So when the unbeliever wants once out of a marriage relationship, there is probably little chance anyway that trying to force him is going to either save the marriage or the lost partner. God says that the brother or sister, meaning the Christian partner, is not under bondage in such cases. In other words, they're not under the bondage of the marriage in that kind of a situation where the unbeliever just totally wants out. However, once again, this is a concession on the part of God due to the hardness of man's heart. And it is a concession he mercifully permits on the behalf of the innocent spouse. So in summary, the only two biblical grounds for divorce are one, fornication, and two, the departure of the non-Christian spouse. And this does not mean either that the Christian partner in that situation stands free from sin and judgment if he is pur purposely provoking the unbelieving partner uh, to leave. And again, you remember we talked about this, the, God sees the heart. If you're married to an unbeliever and you're doing everything you possibly can do to get him to leave, you're guilty. You, you're to have that sweet, amazing grace testimony before him. And if he wants out because he can't stand your Christian testimony, that's when you let him depart. Or if he just leaves because he just, you know, but he's not to, 
the, the reason for his leaving is not because you're provoking him. And that's why I think it's so important that the scripture gives the woman, 1 Peter 3, that we're to, to win an unbelieving spouse, a husband, to the Lord through our silent testimony. That's to make sure we don't nag and provoke him out the door through our silent testimony. Um, so, fornication or the departure of the non-Christian spouse, only two biblical grounds for divorce. Remarriage is permitted for the innocent and faithful marriage partner when the divorce has occurred on biblical grounds. So when the divorce is due to fornication on the part of the other partner or the non, a non-believing partner leaves, then the innocent spouse is able to remarry. In all cases where divorce occurs, here's the way to remember it, when, in all cases where divorce occurs on biblical grounds, the person is biblically permitted to remarry. But where divorce occurs on unbiblical grounds, then the individual who remarries commits adultery in the sight of God. And the one who marries a person divorced on unbiblical grounds also commits adultery in the sight of God. And you can look this up. Jesus repeats this over in Luke 16, 18. Now, those aren't my words. Those are the Lord Jesus' words. Now, where a divorce was not for one of the two acceptable reasons stated above, the Christian, and we're talking, now, you know, non-Christians don't care about any of these things we're talking about because they don't care about obeying God's word. So they divorce, they split, they can marry whoever they want because they could care less what God's word says. So we're talking about Christians here. When a divorce was not for one of the two acceptable reasons that I just gave, fornication or the unbelieving spouse wanting out, the Christian is to do one of two things. He or she is to strive with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength for reconciliation with that divorce partner if the divorce partner has not yet remarried. If they're divorced, if they're Christians, they're divorced, they are to do everything possible to reconcile that marriage if neither one has is, if they're both still single that would be god's will secondly they're to remain single for the rest of their lives so it's either this is for the christian who wants to obey god's word if if he is if she he or she is split for non-biblical reasons not adultery and not an unbeliever wanting out then they're to either reconcile that marriage one another or they're to remain single uh, the individual who accepts Christ by faith as we said becomes a new creature old things are passed away and all things are become new but as we know this does not mean of course that painful memories are going to immediately be erased nor does it mean that bad habits or some deep-rooted causes of marital conflict are all at once going to be eliminated it does mean that the individual has the power of both God the Holy Spirit and the guidance of God's word to help him or her in a process of transformation as he or she grows more Christ-like. One sure sign of growth will be his or her receptiveness and willingness to be obedient to what God's word has to say about marriage and divorce. 
Now, granted, a lot of Christians will say, I don't care anyway. I do not care what God's word, I know what God's word says, but I don't care. I will do it anyway. And that is deliberate disobedience. So, you know, it takes a person who truly, truly wants above all to be obedient to God to be able to do this. It's not easy. It's definitely not easy. If a believer is married, whether to a Christian or a non-Christian, he is not to divorce other than for the two exceptions that, that we talked about. If the individual was saved after a divorce, he is only to do one of two things. For example, you, you were divorced and then you became saved. You're to do one of two things. You are either to remarry that partner, if, if that's possible, if he hasn't gotten married or you haven't gotten married, or you're to um, uh, be remarried to another Christian. Or remain single. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th there's situations like that. If you, you're to do your part to try, but if, if they're not willing, yeah, if they're not willing, you can't. Exactly, exactly. And see, there's all kinds of little things you can come to me and ask me later because there's so many different situations that can arise. In the situation where a non-biblical divorce occurred, but the guilty spouse later repents, God's grace is operative at the time of genuine repentance. If neither former spouse has remarried, a sign of true repentance would be for that repentant spouse to do all he or can, she can to, to restore the marriage. It is possible, with God's help and human yielding to the Spirit's leading, to experience a renewed joy in a relationship with a former spouse. Have you ever known somebody who has gotten a divorce and then maybe got saved or got right with God and they did reconcile with that divorced partner? I have known. I've seen people get remarried <laughs> to the same person, and, and the joy of their relationship has been restored, and that, that can happen. In a situation where a Christian divorced unbiblically and then remarried, the second marriage is seen as adulterous in the sight of God. However, I say this, as is true with all sins that are confessed and are repented of, God forgives, right? He forgives all of us of our sins. And it is agreed that a divorce from a second marriage partner to remarry the first marriage partner would not be God's will. Two wrongs do not make a right. So if, you get, if somebody got saved after they were divorced and, and remarried, it wouldn't be right for them to divorce their second husband to go back and marry their first husband. Two wrongs do not make a right. And there are so many other situations. But remember what Jesus said to the adulterous woman. Not only was she adulterous, but she had been married five times and then was having an adulterous relationship with a man who wasn't her own. He said, you know, your sins are forgiven, but please go and sin no more. <laughs> so that's what I want to end on. Whatever you've done, <laughs> just go and sin no more and make life easy for me, okay? <laughs> Boy, my, my brain is taxed. This is so difficult. And I don't even know what we're teaching on next week because I haven't even looked ahead. But uh, whatever it is, it's going to be better than this. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you that, uh, that your word is true. Thank you for women who are willing to hear it. And thank you for um, your grace in no matter what situations we encounter. 
and what wrongs we have done. Your grace is sufficient and your forgiveness is always there for those who, who ask for it. And Father, my prayer is that even though I stumbled through this lesson and did a terrible job, I just pray that your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you please and it would prosper in the thing whereto you have sent it. And Father, may our marriages, whatever they are today, uh, even if we're widows or we've been single, whatever our situation, I pray that we might uh, be a testimony of Christ's love to the world, that we would definitely be its preservative salt. And Father, again, I just uh, pray, pray your blessing on every woman here. Thank you for her hunger, for your word. Bless her. And if there is a marital situation right now that's in difficulty, please, God, intervene. Help them to show Christ's love one to another and to reconcile that marriage. For we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.